Good morning, church. First of all, a word of gratitude to Oak Park for hosting that leadership event that Lane referred to earlier yesterday. Uh, very kind and gracious and generous of you uh, to do so. We had a good event together, but you heard that already. Thank you, Word. Thank you, Lane, for your words of introduction. A little too kind, a little too generous, but I do appreciate it. And worship team, thank you for leading us into the presence of God and helping us to lift our, our voices in gratitude and uh, praise to Him. It has been good to be together so far this morning. My wife and I... I decided to downside a few years ago, and so we moved from our home in Burlington and bought a home in Hamilton up on the escarpment. A modest home built in the 1950s, and a home that relatively smaller, about a thousand square foot footprint, uh, but a, foam, a home that came with it, a, a three-season sunroom, which we've since renovated, and I've fallen in love with that renovated space now that it's a year-round room. It's comfortable. It's somewhat stylish. There are glass windows from floor to ceiling gives us a nice view outside. And I suppose the part that makes me feel somewhat good about myself is I did some of the design work on it. And you feel great about that until uh, somebody likes to point out the design flaws of something that you've worked on. Like my wife, who just recently walked into the room and said, Ah, oh, this room is so hot. I don't know how you managed to stay in here. She's like, Ugh. Something I know already, and she has to draw my attention to it. But I got a little defensive in the moment. I, I said to her, you, you know what, honey, it's, it's not extra hot in here. It's just the windows need to be open. So I got up from my chair, and I went to open the window. It's already open. <laughs> well, maybe more need to be open, but as I looked around the room, there are high windows in the room. They were all open already. So that defense I lost. And then I said to her, you know what, it's, it's just one of those days where it's stagnant outside. There's not much wind movement. So I walked out on the porch to verify by hunch. Nope, wrong again. Nice, cool breeze that I could feel out some outside. Somehow or another, just wasn't managed to work inside. And to make matters worse, we have since doing that room done a little more renovation on our house and we've put other windows in so that there's a breeze that blows nicely through the rest of our home. Just not this room that I designed. It's become my favorite room. And you know, after that little event where my wife uh, walked in and unkindly drew my attention to my design flaw, the very next day I came across this text in John chapter 3. This was in my quiet time. Verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You can't force the wind. The wind has, it seeks its own path. It has a mind of its own. And when Jesus spoke this word about the mysterious workings of the Spirit, he was speaking to a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the ultimate religious insider in his social context he is the poster child for all that it meant in that day and age to be a person of privilege and power especially as it comes to religious things he was a jew and the jewish people felt that they had exclusive access to the blessings of god that they uniquely deserved those blessings he was a pharisee and the pharisees felt that amongst all the people of israel not only did they understand 
the Jewish law better than everyone else, but they upheld the law, and they practiced the law better than everyone else. Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling council in the land over a group of people that are very religious. And lastly, he was called the teacher. Not just any teacher, but but quite the influential teacher. Maybe somebody who had as much influence in Israel as any of the other teachers. All that to say that Nicodemus was part of the elite. He was part of the upper echelon. And maybe, apart from a high priest, no one understood what it was like to enjoy privilege in that time and in that place as much as he did. And yet all these advantages, many that were religious in nature, seemed to be for him liabilities that kept him, that prevented him from understanding the workings and the ways of the Spirit of God. Now I would like us to consider a slightly expanded version of the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus on that occasion. So I'm going to ask you for a second, if you want to, you don't have to, just just close your eyes and I want you to imagine the scene. Just don't fall asleep on me. With your eyes closed, imagine it has been a long day in the land of Israel. Now the sun is setting on the Judean hills. It's nighttime, it's dark, with darkness comes the quiet. All that can be heard in the background is some, the hum of some cicadas, and perhaps the shuffling of an elderly man's feet as he seeks a private audience with the charismatic Galilean. As Nicodemus moves into that place to speak with Jesus, imagine also a warm, warm Mediterranean wind starting to blow across that place, finding its way into the windows, into that room. Now there was a Pharisee named, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Then verse 8 one more time. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. If you've nodded off on me, open your eyes again. (laughs) When Nicodemus came to Jesus, he came by night. He came out of the cloak of darkness, and for good reason. Jesus had developed a little bit of a reputation as a local rabble-rouser. He had recently been at a wedding and pulled off the greatest party trick ever. 
He turned water into wine. The only problem is he used water that had been set aside exclusively for religious purification purposes. So I can well imagine he got some people upset. It wasn't long after that before he found himself in the temple courts. And something got Jesus upset, and he turned over the table where the money changers were, and he fashioned a whip, and he chased the money changers and the merchants out of that place. He, He basically trashed the place. Nicodemus is a good, upstanding citizen. He has a reputation to protect. He has to be careful who he keeps company with. So he comes by night. And when he arrives into Jesus' company, he begins the conversation. He does so with politeness. He refers to Jesus as rabbi, you know, this great teacher. But it's not long into the conversation before before Nicodemus is very much taking charge of things. He's going to be the one who controls this conversation. He's going to tell Jesus what he needs to know. Jesus, we know that you are a great teacher, someone sent by God. The miracles prove that. I think at this point, Nick comes off a little bit, a little bit as a little bit of a Nicky know-it-all. Don't let that pun be lost on you. If you listen to the conversation, you can hear some presumption. You can hear some arrogance, you can hear some certitude in his voice. All that's been formed and fashioned over the years from his education, from the job that he's had, from his his station in society. But Jesus cuts through this. Jesus wants none of the, 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 the pompous positioning or pompous posturing. So it's almost like he cuts Nicodemus off and he says to him, No one can perceive, no one can experience the kingdom of God unless they have first been born again, born anew, or born from above. Whatever translation you prefer. I think this whole thing throws throws Nicodemus off, and he's kind of befuddled and confused at this point. And from the narrative, we can't quite tell whether Nicodemus is confused because he doesn't understand the full nature of the metaphor that Jesus is using at this point. Or whether or not Nicodemus does get the point that Jesus is trying to make, he's just not sure whether or not it's possible for somebody that's as old as he is, who's lived as long as he is, to possibly change his spots at that point in life. How can I possibly start over again? And so Jesus, to help Nicodemus, he unpacks things a little further. He tries to help him understand what it means to be born again or born from above. And he says, basically, Nicodemus, it means that you need to be born of the Spirit. Technically, what he says is you need to be born of water and Spirit. And it's a long conversation, a long theological diatribe to get into what's actually meant here. But there's a very good chance that in a way these two things are roughly the same thing because when you receive the Spirit in your life, that Spirit comes in like water and washes us clean. So let's just collapse those two concepts for this morning's sake. And it's at this point that Jesus introduces his analogy of the wind to understand, to explain the workings of the Spirit. And it is important for us to understand that there is a pun going on here. Because whether we're talking the New Testament or the Old Testament, the word that gets used for wind here can also be translated breath or Spirit of God. So that when we read, the wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear it sound, so on and so forth. You can also read, the Spirit 
blows wherever it pleases. And I think his point here to Nicodemus is this. Nicodemus, based on your position in society, you are just so used to being in control. Just so used to being in control with your theological acumen, with your political power, with your mastery of religion, you are always in charge. But when it comes to the things of the Spirit, this is one time where you will not be master. You will not be the one in charge. You cannot control the untamed Spirit of God. I think it was Kelbrin McLean who once referred to the Holy Spirit as the wild child of the Godhead. I think we need to be careful in pushing that analogy too far, but I do like the sounds of it at first, because it reminds us that the Spirit is loose in the world, wild and in disruptive ways, always transcending human control, always transcending human comprehension. The Spirit is in the world elusive, mysterious, disruptive, unpredictable, never contained by rules and regulations, nor controlled by formulas. The church I attend, both my wife Sharon and I worship at, is the church I pastored at for 20 years. I transitioned out of that role about six and a half years ago. And in recent years, they've redone their mission statement and their vision statement and redone their core values. One of the core values that they recrafted emphasizes God as mystery. And I love that concept. I just, not only is it kind of hip and fresh, but it's just so easy to fall in love with that concept that God is mystery. But we can easily tend to over-romanticize that concept of God as mystery until that same God invites us to leave the comfort, predictability, and familiarity of our life circumstances to follow Him out into that mystery into the great unknown. And then it gets just a little frightening for us. You know, if I'm honest, I found it a little easier to follow and to heed God in my life when I was younger, way back in the day. It was easier to hear the Holy Spirit's prompting back when I was younger. This is just me. I'm not putting it on anyone else. And It was easier, I think, for me to yield to His prompting in my life 30, 35 years ago before I attained a theological education, before I accumulated 30 years of pastoral leadership experience, before I spent time as the director of a national network of churches, before I became a religious professional, like Nicodemus. It was easier, I feel, to follow the Spirit back then. But not just me. Maybe you too. This church swims in the tradition known as evangelicalism, like the church that I belong to and the church I worship at. And if your faith has been birthed and formed within the evangelical tradition, there is a very good chance that you are fond of this narrative for the way that it has popularized the phrase, born again. And for the way that it helps us, ourselves, and to help other people understand how or what it means to have a relationship with God. And this is very important for us. It helps us to understand the importance of confession and repentance and putting our faith, our belief in Jesus in order to have the Spirit enter our lives and wash us clean. 
I just find it somewhat ironic that when Jesus coined this phrase, think of this, he's inviting somebody who is already a religious insider to leave the rigidity of his religious system and ways and to step out into the life of reading and following the Spirit. I find it ironic because sometimes we as evangelicals, without even knowing it, when we're inviting people to be born again, we're inviting them to become religious insiders, to join a group that is at times, in the way we behave, somewhat exclusive exclusive because we think we know we have a better corner on the truth than anyone else. And friends, it is good to be reminded that our group is very much like the group that Nicodemus belonged to. They had a book, we have a book. They loved to study and to learn their book, we love to study and to learn our book. They had a way, a knack for kind of reducing that book to a set of rules and then making it all about obeying those rules. Friends, we sometimes have the same tendency. And in the process of doing so, we can become smug and elite in our knowing and the self-sufficiency that ensues from that can make us less and less interested and less and less practiced at what it means to discern and align our lives with the Spirit who is working freshly around us every single day. It's Pentecost today, the church's birthday, as, as Lane reminded us, and probably there is no better day to remind ourselves that before there was a book, there was a church, and before there was a church, there was a Spirit. Pentecost is the day that marks that occasion long ago when God poured out His Spirit that spirit formed or gave birth to a church, and it's from that believing community or through that believing community that we received an inspired text. Think about that order for a second, and then as an aside, think with me about what the average evangelical statement of faith looks like. Go to the average church website, maybe your own, I know ours is much like this, and look at the doctrinal statement. More often than not, the first statement will always be about the Bible. A good statement about the inspiration, the authority of Scripture, something that's true, something that's important. We don't want to deny it. I just get a kick out of the order. Then there's a statement about God. Then there's a statement about Trinity. There's a statement about Jesus and salvation and somewhere down the, the Holy Spirit. I just wonder if sometimes we might have the emphasis wrong or we might have the order wrong. We might have the priority wrong. Sometimes it's almost like we make the Bible itself a God. If we're not already, if we're not careful, we could easily, easily do that. I think it's important to remember that in his time, no one was better studied, no one better understood the Scriptures than Nicodemus. And yet with all that learning, with all that knowing, with all that knowledge, Nicodemus remained obtuse to the workings and the ways of the Spirit's. I think this whole thing underscores the danger of living life as a religious insider. And I think John, the Gospel writer, as he's organizing the orders of his stories, he doesn't want us to miss this fact. Because right after this story about Nicodemus, a religious insider who seems to miss the important stuff, he tells another story about another person that Jesus meets by a well one day. Not a man, but a woman. 
Not someone who has a name. This person remains nameless in the story. Not all that important of a person. Somebody who's cast in the story as being somewhat morally disgraceful. Someone who's associated with the Samaritans, and so she has no religious clout. The group that she belonged to was somewhat religiously suspect. She has zero theological capital, and yet very much unlike Nicodemus in his conversation with Jesus, she seems to get it. She gets it so much, it animates her life. She runs back to town, tells people about this great person she's met at the well, and she brings many back. The whole town shows up, and many get saved because she perceived well and responded to it in a way that Nicodemus didn't. And I think what John is doing here is he's warning the religious insiders of his own day and of every generation since then to be careful Be careful how much confidence we put in our religious pedigree and our resources because we could easily miss the Holy Spirit if we're not looking in the right direction. My wife and I, a few weeks ago, celebrated our 36th wedding anniversary. And it has been a joy and a treat for those 36 years. Not without a couple challenges along the way, but it has been a wonderful gift from God. I remember the very first time I met her, and I was smitten instantly. It wasn't just her looks as gorgeous as she is, but I, I, just, I was taken with her whole being, and I was so confident. I said within a couple days, maybe it was a week afterwards to some of my friends, she's the one. She's the one I'm going to marry. And four and a half years later, it happened. So I wasn't wrong. I made that statement with full confidence without doing any research, without doing any analysis. There was no risk assessment. I didn't get a sheet of paper out in that first week and draw a line down the center and a line across the top with the pros and the cons, the way which one there were more of to help me with the decision. I didn't do it. I just sensed that she was the right one. Friends, there are different ways of knowing. Some ways emphasize rationale and reason and logic and that's all good but there are other ways of knowing sometimes ways that have more to do with a feeling in the gut and intuition and discernment i think life with the spirit spirit is often more about the latter or at the very least includes both ways of knowing Friends, we need to relearn the habit of listening for and being attentive to the Spirit who blows freshly around our lives every day. We need to do so with the book in our hands. We need to do so in community, not in isolation all by ourselves. But we need to do so remembering that the one who gave us both book and community will not be controlled by either one. The Spirit of God, that is. And I think it is good for us to know in advance that in, there will be times in our faithful listening to, our faithful reading of, our faithful following of the Holy Spirit that might set, upset other people. It might surprise, unnerve our family and friends. It might even be 
a little disruptive in the way that we respond to the way, the way we believe the Spirit is prompting us in, in our lives. It might be a little disruptive to the community of faith that we are a part of. As I believe it was eventually for Nicodemus. Later on in John's Gospel, chapter 19, he may not have got it right in the beginning, but think about how the story ends for Nicodemus. In the end, he found himself walking or hiking up Golgotha's hill with his friend Joseph of Arimathea to retrieve and to prepare the body of their good friend, their Savior, Jesus, who had, who had died. I find, it, it was in, I find it interesting that it wasn't one of the twelve wasn't one of the disciples who were with Jesus for the three and a half years that went and got his body. It was two members of the Sanhedrin, a group that for the most part of the Gospels were the bad guys. Two of them showed up to get the body. The last time Nicodemus came to Jesus it was that night, but this time he comes in the day, in broad daylight, in full view of the Roman and the Jewish leaders, the authorities. And in doing so, he risked his reputation, he risked his relationships, he risked his career, he risked his very life, and at the very least, he risked or spent a fortune because he spent a truckload of money in preparing that body for burial. This is a good news ending for a guy who didn't, didn't get it initially. I think eventually he understands the ways of the Spirit and he takes the risk to step out of the security of his religious certitude and to step into the life of reading, knowing, following and trusting the Spirit wherever the Spirit takes him, no matter how risky that might be. In a sense, he threw caution to the wind to follow the holy wind of God. Can we pray together? Father God, Holy Trinity, on this day, we are so thankful that we are reminded that this day marks that occasion long ago when you blessed us with the gift of your Spirit, a Spirit who has hovered over this earth and has been teasing new life into being all along, but a Spirit who now abides in the very center of our being for those of us who know Christ and follow him. Thank you for the generative work that he does in our life. Thank you, Spirit of God, that you guide us, that you will lay a path for us. When we wander off that path, you, you nudge us back in the right direction. You bring a rebuke to our life. You resource us to serve you. God, you, you just don't call us into mission and ministry, but you equip us by your Spirit with the right tools for the right equation, and you empower those tools. You enable us to do things that we couldn't do ourselves, things that are all beyond all that we could ask or imagine. God, thank you that you never leave us, but that your presence always abides by the working of your Spirit. We are asking today that you would help to wake us from our slumber, from the ways that we have mostly unintentionally inoculated ourselves against the awareness of the way your Spirit is working in our lives. God, not only do we want your Spirit to blow freshly over our lives, we want you to give us ears and eyes to hear and to see and to understand what he's doing. We don't want to miss what he's up to. And God, whatever your Spirit is doing in and around this church these days, 
and in and around the households that are represented in this congregation, in the lives of people gathered here this morning, oh God, as they sense what your Spirit is beckoning them to do, would you give them boldness and courage to obey? God, do your good work. We pray in the Savior's name. Amen.